Virgin Radio. We're very blessed and uh, very happy to always invite one of our regular contributors into the studio to have a chat about what's happening out there in the cosmos. We're uh, joined by astrophysicist Dr. Robin Cook. Good to see you again, Robin. Yeah, always a pleasure. Robin, very hot topic mm. because uh, some very large object has washed ashore at Greenheads in recent weeks. Yeah, that's and right. And the speculation attached to this is quite broad. And, yeah. You know, I'm a, a bit of an X-Files fan. That's and right. uh, Could it be aliens? Bit of a sci-fi fan myself. But, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of other explanations saying it's just purely aviation junk. But that's right. what's your take on this? Is this actually a potentially space junk? Yeah, look, I've heard a lot of uh, <laughs> different uh, speculations as to what it might be, aliens and uh, maybe it's some rigging equipment. But no, it very much looks like like a piece of casing from a rocket launch. So so when uh, lots of rockets get launched into space, of course, they have to jettison a lot of the material that they're holding the fuel for. What, rockets and satellites, for yeah, example? Yeah, well, the satellites often attached to that to rocket, rocket. Right? So okay, the rocket yeah. is really just the vessel to get the satellite. The very small piece, generally at the top, that very small piece of equipment that you care about is being launched by an, a you know, humongous kind of rocket to, to get it up there. And, and often you want to jettison that stuff because it's weighing you down and you really just care about that piece at the top. So this really looks like uh, a case for a, for a rocket, essentially. And now the question is, of course, whose rocket is it? Whose now, why is, is there no insignia or any information or any... Uh, well, I think even if there a, was... Barcode or yeah. <laughs> QR code? Exactly. <laughs> a, a return to sender, a return address or something like that, maybe. If found, sent back to... Yeah, well, the trouble is when these things get jettisoned, you know, they have to plummet through the Earth's atmosphere. And then, of course, when that happens... They There's get a lot burned, of heat. A lot of heat. Any kind of, uh, you know, inking or any sort of engraving would probably just be completely shredded. And looking at the state of this thing, it really doesn't show much... You know, leftover beyond no. its, you know, uh, you know, some of the the casing itself. So clearly, any kind of insignia that was there might have been removed. But it does seem to come from an Indian space agency rocket. Now that's still into speculation as to whether that's the case or not. And of course, the Indian space agency hasn't said anything to that order. Or why any wouldn't effect. they? Why wouldn't they take ownership of that? Are they just concerned about the fact that it was? It's a, it could be a, a liability or yeah. litigious and of nature if any damage was done yeah, look, with this junk. There's probably it, some PR involved with that, but okay. there is certainly a treaty involved that pretty much all spacefaring nations have signed, including ourselves, which says that if you launch something into space and if there's debris as a result of that, it's your responsibility from start to finish to take care of it, right? And, and that, so that's, that's in other true words, everywhere. if someone in Greenheads currently had their and it actually fell on their house or their shed right. or their yeah. On their car. Unfortunately, it didn't happen. But it didn't know, happen. It Fortunately, it didn't happen. But yeah. are they the, the, the country of origin is absolutely. responsible for that damage? Yeah, well, absolutely. That's Incredible. that's really the way it goes. I had and no idea. Yeah, and I mean, this is not the first time this has happened in WA. You may have heard of, of course, the the sky. I was I was around. You were around. Sky, yeah, yes, I was. News. This is the sort of the seventies, the eighties is when it, it was certainly launched. Was. Right, and, and at some point, 20 or 30 years into its orbit, it started losing control and losing its ability to maintain its orbit and, and started plummeting towards the Earth. And of course, WA being the great state it was, you know, great in size, it just happened to land over the sort of uh, region of Esperance itself. And of course, yeah, big bits of pieces of rocket and, and, the, and the satellite itself started plummeting onto to Esperance's beaches and its surrounding regions. So, of course, this is not our first time experiencing this. So what's, I think, really... And it was a very large piece It as was. Well. It was, I think, Still place. to this day, the largest piece of space junk ever reclaimed from a from a rocket. So Skylab is actually larger than the space junk that's that's, that's yeah. appeared. That's right. In that's right. And in fact, the the, the piece of uh, the Greenhead uh, rocket is only just the cap, the capping of of a what looks like an oxygen tank or some sort of fuel tank. Now, Euclid is named after the Greek mathematician Euclid of Alexandria, right. who lived around 300 BC and founded the subject of ge geometry. Uh, now, we're going to talk about Euclid in a completely different uh, exactly. facet. So, yeah. at the moment, 
there's a telescope that's been launched how many kilometres into space? Here we go, this is a big number, 1.5 million kilometres, so about four times the distance from the Earth to the Moon, so four times further than the Moon is. Unfathomably large distance to a place called Lagrange 2. This is a very special place. It's where we send a lot of our telescopes. So it's outside of our solar system. It's in our solar system, but it's Just. well, well, I would say it's not even as far as Mars. So it is still, oh, it's still okay. in our, so I would it's still still in our neighborhood. Sure, you know, and it absolutely. needs to be a, if, in order for us to communicate with it. But it's far as far as any kind of man made you know, object could be, right? We've got things on Mars, we've got rovers on Mars, etc. But for something like a telescope, which needs, of course, some control and some. Uh, you know, rotating and such, this thing is incredibly far away, you know, and it, it of course, requires a lot of automated programming to, to make sure it operates and, and functions at such a large distance away without any human intervention. And when was the Euclid tele- Telescope actually launched? So it was launched about a month ago. Right? Okay, it's, so it's taken a month to travel it's, one It effectively point takes that long to get 1.5 million kilometres away. Now, if you think about how far 1.5 well, million kilometres is... Well, that doesn't sound too bad. Yeah, a, yeah, month, a month's pretty reasonable. Yeah, that's, that's zipping through space, certainly. That's right. Certainly. Yeah. And I guess the, the the crucial thing is now it joins uh, th- these other space telescopes are out there. You might have heard of the James Webb Space Telescope. Yes. Gaia is another one of these telescopes that's out there. Yes, so this yes. is just yet another tool for us astrophysicists in our tool belt of telescopes. And so what is the tele- telescope's role? Well, the name gives it away. So Euclid, sure. this, this mathematician, all to do with the father of geometry, right? And really what Euclid is doing is it's trying to measure the geometry of the universe. Now, it's kind of a strange thing to think about, but the universe itself has some structure in it. It has uh, filaments and voids, these um, grand uh, expanses of nothingness and this, you know, tendrils of galaxies, these large-scale structures that we really have some clue about but not a, a lot of knowledge about. And we're really trying to push the extent of that knowledge with the Euclid telescope. Now, it's what we call a survey telescope. So, unlike the James Webb Space Telescope, which takes these beautiful pictures of incredibly high detail, uh, the Euclid is about surveying. So, it takes a huge measurement, measurement of the entire universe, gets a almost like a, you know, a survey of every galaxy and every location and every to, to high precision, which gives you this structure of the, the grand scale of the universe. And what's the range of the telescope itself? How, how, how far out is it? Is it uh, Able to see? See. Yeah, so it goes all the way out to 10 billion years of the universe. Now, we, we like to think about distance in time almost because when you think about when light has escaped a galaxy say uh, it has taken time for that light to get to us sure and so you can only take a photograph with with the use of light exactly right so and we're not we, using a flash on this telescope we're not I'm using sure. a flash it's it's, it's okay. actually too bright for yeah, even sure. for flashes so if you think about that when we take images of galaxies in the distance we're taking taking images of what they used to look like right we're looking back in time so we when we talk about the euclid telescope we're looking 10 billion years back into the history of the universe, right? So that's uh, almost 10% of the age of the universe at this point. So when it was very, very, very young, the universe looked very, very different, very chaotic, very structured. We want to know more about that. And was it very volatile back in the, in those many years ago? We believe so. We believe it had to have been. To create the structures like our own galaxy, we had to have other galaxies colliding in with each other, so what we call these galaxy mergers. For galaxies to build up to the masses that we see today, like our own Milky Way galaxy, they would have had to collide with one another uh, tremendously in order for this to happen. So we do think that the early universe was very chaotic and things were smashing into each other left, right and centre. Is that why the sun has become so combustible? Was that a merge of, of, of several planets? Well, the sun, yeah, I think that's very true. I mean, in the sense the sun is this kind of 
uh, uh, new age star. It's formed out of a lot of explosions from previous stars. And we think about the cycle of stars. You know, we have fuel being formed. It, it burns. The stars it gives actually away planets initially, and so, then yeah, they yeah, are they in some sense. So Jupiter is a large gas giant, and the Sun is a lot of gas to the point where it's so massive that it can fuse. Now, if Jupiter was maybe a thousand times more massive, it would be another star. Now, you can imagine that. A star at the centre of our solar system and then in the position of Jupiter, yet another star. And there's no way potentially that Jupiter can become a star, though. It just doesn't fall into that It's what we call a failed star. It wasn't quite big enough to, to form a star. Now, it's not uncommon that solar systems have multiple stars within them. In fact, uh, binaries and trinaries and quadruplets are quite a common uh, arrangement for solar systems. Our singular star, eight-planet solar system is actually quite an uncommon thing. We, we tend to think what we have here is normal, but it's actually out of the ordinary in that sense. So, the telescope's sort of around the area of Mars. Yep. How long does the photographs take? Is it video or photographs? It's a bit of it's a, a bit it's of both. A, it's a bit of both in the sense that you know, you t- what's a video if not just a, a set of sure. frames are stacked sure. after one each other, no, no, one another, and it, effectively that's what the Euclid is doing. It's How long does it take for that those uh, photographs to be sent back? It's it's a control. It's here, almost instantaneous Earth. in the sense that it's it's being sent back at the speed of light. Incredible. Right. So once it gets taken, those images they then get sent back to Earth, and often whatever part of the Earth is facing the telescope. Now that might be Australia, where we've got lots of these satellite dishes that can collect those. Uh, information and uh, it, it's, it's practically instantaneous at that point. So, will this telescope also be able to uh, focus on a planet and actually look at the surface of a planet? No, definitely not. So, this is what it doesn't do. So, James okay. Webb Space Telescope is that's what it's really about. You know, yep. it's about taking very high precision details, very, uh, very exquisite details, very ne- narrow round range of uh, field of view. Whereas the Euclid Telescope is really about broad scale cosmological scales, massive filaments, those kind of things. Incredible. So what are we trying to achieve here? Is it a matter of actually looking at uh, the mortality rate of Earth? (laughs) Or is is there another grand scheme? I mean, apart from understanding what's around you, I mean, you know, there's always been this theory in my head because of the science fiction mm. you know love of science fiction and and conspiracy theories that you know we're not alone that's right you know is there is there a chance that in our lifetime with the use of these telescopes are we going to be able to discover life on other planets yeah, i think this is always the the underpinning the questions that we have you know we can go out and we can ask these very pure questions about what is the origin of the universe what is the structure of the universe but ultimately what we're trying to get to is why are we so unique where we are here? I agree. Right? And it'd this be almost arrogant to believe that nobody else is exactly. unique in this universe. And then the or question other becomes, but where is everyone? Where is everybody? And this is a famous question posited by Enrico Fermi. You know, where is everybody? If the universe is so grand and so numerous in, in possible life-forming planets, where is everybody? And this is a, a question that's kind of riddled a lot of astrophysicists since the dawn of time. But, you know... These kind of big questions that we're answering, you know, the scale of the universe, the origins of the universe, how stars formed within that universe, ultimately get to the point where it says, well, how likely are the, the conditions for life really? You know, we think they're abundant, but maybe they're not actually that abundant. Maybe we are unique. Maybe we are a rare Earth in that sense. But I, I still believe that's not But on that point, we, we're also presuming that the, the intelligence level or the, the uh, capacity of, mm. a, of another planet with life is actually superior to ours. I mean, conceivably, mm. they could be as prehistoric as what we were thousands of years ago. That's right. And and so this is not just a spatial argument. You're not just asking where in the universe... 
things are, but when in the universe? Because we know that we have an expiry date at some point. You know, of course we do. Intelligent civilizations have the ability to extinct themselves, and we're not too far from that ourselves. You know, yeah. <laughs> just quietly. We, we, we cause enough damage through exactly. Our, through so our, there is a, our arrogance. Exactly, our arrogance what, is yeah. what kind of will ultimately be our downfall. And so there's this temporal nature to when civilizations can be found. So if you don't have two civilizations, even though if they're on stars nearby each other. If they didn't exist at the same time, and we're talking about a 13 billion year lifestyle, you know, cycle here, it's just unlikely that they'll ever communicate with one another. So, would this telescope also be able to tell us if there's any shifting going on regarding the uh, the, pl- the path of planets orbiting uh, the sun? Uh, this is more of a James Webb Space Telescope thing. Again, when we're talking right. about planet scales, these are really the smaller scales that we we study, or maybe moons are even smaller still. But planets, moons, comets, those are the very small things within our own solar system. And certainly these are the things that you would look for for harbouring life. But Euclid's this really grandiose uh, cosmological scale, origins of the universe, the very... Uh, nature of the Big Bang and the projection of the universe going forward. What are you hoping? Uh, will, that will, you know, what What are you hoping for that will come from this uh, this telescope? I'm, I'm curious there, what, you, this, what your take is on it. There's this kind of thing that's always riddled me as an astrophysicist. Right? We we talk about the makeup of the universe, and we think we have a good idea of the words that we give to the things that are in the universe. And five percent of the universe we think is this thing called normal matter, and that's. You and me, that's the stars, yep. that's the planets. Carbon-based. Everything carbon, everything. Every atom we know is normal matter, right? But that's only 5%, so maybe normal matter is not the right word for it. Okay. A further 25% is dark matter. Now, it's matter... Explain what dark matter is just well, for our listeners. So. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it's the fact that there's all this gravitational pull on galaxies and on stars and on everything in the universe. There's all this gravity existing there. We can see that gravity, right? That's, that's abundantly clear, but we can't see the light from it. It's not giving off light. It's matter in the sense of gravi- and gravity. You know, gravity is... But it's not solid. Of, well, we don't know. We don't see ah, light from it. Okay. Right? And this is the real difficult part about it is that it doesn't give off light. It's invisible. It's not giving off photons. We're not able to observe it, but we can see its effect. Yeah. Right, it's dark energy, dark because it doesn't give off light, but dark because we also don't know what it is, right? And we're, thi- we're hoping that Euclid itself can give us insights into what that, that matter is, what is causing that uh, I- excess gravity that we see in galaxies but cannot see. And then I, you might have noticed I, I missed out 70% there. Yeah, what that, is the 70%? Picture, dark energy. Now, this is sort of poorly <laughs> named. I've never heard of dark energy. I've <laughs> exactly. heard of dark matter, but I've never heard of That's dark energy. That's because if we didn't know much about dark matter, we really don't know Are they complementary? They're not at all. The only thing they share is the dark at the start of their name, right? In the sense that we also don't know much about this dark energy, but really dark energy is this force that seems to be accelerating the expansion of the universe. Now, you might have heard of this before. The Big Bang uh, has thrust galaxies away from us and everything sure. is expanding. Everything's receding away from everything else. But it seems to be doing so at an accelerated rate. Things are expanding more rapidly the further out you go. And this is dark energy that's pushing away. And we don't know what's influencing that acceleration. We have no idea whatsoever. It's some energy. It's dark. We can't see its effect. We can't see any light given off by it. And it makes up the majority of the energy in the universe. And we don't have a clue what it is. Now, we're hoping... That if you look on the grand scales of the Euclid telescope's kind of repertoire of things it's going to see, we might get a clue into what is causing this this expansion, what is underpinning dark energy. So that's really what I want to hear from the Euclid uh, results: is what is the dark part about dark energy? Are we as Earthlings? <laughs> I like that. <laughs> as humans, <laughs> are we uh, are we spending enough on uh, space travel and, and uh, space 
space exploration. Are we spending enough? Well, I have a very biased opinion, of course I could I say I know you that. do, but I mean, obviously, there's obviously benefits in this, and obviously the future of our Earth, uh, is. I think, is uh, is going to be um, requiring this information. That's right. Not only just about dark energy or dark matter, but I'm just talking about, in the scheme of things, you know, I believe the sun is now nowhere near the same level of potency it was, exactly, yeah. you know, centuries ago and so forth. So obviously this change is happening. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're very abusive and very arrogant the way we treat our own uh, mm-hmm. planet. So surely to me, the next, it's logical to actually see what the next step will be. Yeah. We yeah. can't go to the oceans, really, because whatever we're doing on land is also being affected in the ocean. Yeah, twice as much, I would say, in the ocean. I would agree with that land, comment, yeah. too, especially if you're sitting now, space in is a Now, space is a harsh environment, right? And, and at sure. the moment, despite what some of these news articles will say, there is no planet B. There is simply not a planet that we have discovered that ticks all the boxes required for life. We're, we're, we're in, very the, in our universe. In our universe thus far, right? Even in our okay. galaxy, this is in, you know, the galaxy itself is expansive, but to get to the other side would take millions of years and it's unfeasible. So even within our solar neighborhood, you know, places we could actually get to, no singular planet has been found that ticks up all the boxes that we need as humans to live. We're very squishy. We require a lot of things. We require a certain composition of the atmosphere, certain gravity so that our bones don't crush, you know, the water composition. All these things humans require, we're yet to find a planet that ticks all those boxes. So, science fiction, <laughs> there is no other option, really. As, as it's just it's pure fantasy. That's right. So, therefore, we should reflect on exactly what we are doing to our planet to there do the best no we can B. to let it recover, which mm-hmm. I, I, I genuinely believe it can re- recover. That's right. If we treat it with... TLC. That's right. Lots of TLC. Lots of TLC. That is absolutely true. Dr. Robin Cook, it's always a pleasure to have you in here. Thank you very much for spending some time with us. Are you still involved with the tours at the... uh, the, At the Perth Observatory up in the the hills? Yeah, we love having people come up to the hills, although it is a bit cold in the winter. Sure. The skies are always nice. So when are the tours actually run for those people that are interested in going themselves and or taking their children to get them interested in astrophysics? And I mean, Perth is the absolutely best place to be for astrophysics at the moment with the building of the square kilometre rail, access to the space telescopes etc so it's really great to get people involved in astronomy right now but the dates are we, we often do fridays saturdays and sundays in winter and even in summer we do thursdays uh all and nights, what times always all, nights all, always nights except for sundays we do day tours now of course there's not much astronomical you can see during no, the day, really. on one sure. blazingly bright thing and that's the sun uh but we do um you know a tour of our historic telescopes and we've got hundred year old telescopes that are still in operation we we show off these to the you know to the to the wa um patrons it's really really great experience Great. Always look forward to your company and thank you very much for this wonderful information. Dr. Robin Cook, astrophysicist.